My guest today is Professor Darren McMahon. Professor Darren McMahon is a historian and a writer and is professor of history at Florida State University. His research focuses on the history of ideas such as history of happiness, history of genius. He has written several books and articles on these and related topics. His book that is relevant to this discussion is Divine Fury, A History of Genius. Professor Darren McMahon is with me on the phone from Boston. Darren, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, Darren, before we begin our discussion on the subjects of history of ideas and history of genius as a concept, please tell us about yourself, uh, about your education, about your career and about your research. Sure. Well, I was educated at the University of California, Berkeley, um, and then I did my Ph.D. at uh, Yale University. Um, I taught as a postdoc at uh, Columbia University and New York University, as well as Yale, uh, before going to uh, Florida State in 2004. Uh, and I was at Florida State for uh, 10 years, and in fact, I've just left uh, and will be taking up a position this fall at Dartmouth College uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, and that's why I'm in Boston now, which is closer to New Hampshire than, than Florida. Um, <clears throat> I am, as you said, a historian of ideas. Uh, I was trained really uh, as a European intellectual and cultural historian. Uh, but I've gotten interested in the last several years uh, in, in reviving a kind of history that has been in some ways out of fashion for some time. That is a history of, of particular concepts or ideas and looking at how those uh, concepts and ideas change over the intellectual long durée, over uh, vast tracts of time. And historians in, in, in the last several decades have, have tended to focus uh, on, on much more um, precise contexts, um, and uh, there are gains to be, to, to be had in that kind of contextual uh, focus, but uh, I think we lose something, too, when we, when we uh, forget the grand sweep, and that's uh, what I'm interested in in many ways. You have written a book on the history of happiness, and your book, Divine Fury, A History of Genius, explores the history of the concept of genius. So, for your research on the history of ideas, why have you selected these two topics? Well, I was trained really as an 18th century historian, a historian of the Enlightenment, and my first book, in fact, was on the kind of origins of of conservative and right-wing thinking uh, uh, that come out of the 18th century in response to the Enlightenment uh, and then in, in response to the French Revolution. Um, and I, I think of myself sort of first and foremost as an 18th century scholar, a scholar of the Enlightenment. And um, many people would, would agree with me when I say that the, the 18th century is really a pivotal moment in, in Western history. It's a kind of um, moment of transition between the old and the new. And many of the problems um, of, of what historians and scholars sometimes call modernity of modern life uh, originate in the 18th century. So I think of the 18th century as a critical period. Uh, and both happiness and genius are uh, perfect examples uh, of ideas that uh, uh, emerge uh, uh, to the fore in the 18th century um, and have had a kind of important consequence ever since. Happiness um, is an 18th century notion first and foremost. Human beings had thought about happiness, of course, prior to that. But it's in the 18th century that 
large numbers of, of men and women are, are presented with what is really a novel prospect, and that novel prospect is that uh, they ought to be happy in this life, uh, not because of their superior merit or talents or uh, blessings, but because uh, they're human beings, that human beings ought to be happy. It's a, it leads to a, revelation, a revolution in human expectations uh, that has profound consequences uh, about um, what people expect out of life uh, going forward. It has profound consequences on, on politics and, and cultural conceptions and, and, and other things. Genius, it turns out, is also an 18th century notion. Like happiness, it has a backstory, of course, uh, but it's in the 18th century that uh, the notion of uh, the, 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 the superhuman figure, uh, uh, the genius, emerges as a kind of new cultural model, a new cultural type. Um, and I uh, try to follow how uh, that has important sort of uh, impact on, on subsequent thinking and indeed on uh, subsequent action. In your book, Divine Fury, A History of Genius, you trace the history of genius, both as a concept and as a figure, from ancient times to present day. And you suggest that the concept of genius as a figure of extraordinary privilege uh, began in ancient Greece. Talk to us about the emergence of the concept of genius in ancient Greece. Sure. Uh, and, and again, as I just said, I really that the genius as we think of the the figure, a, a, a person of extraordinary creative uh, and intellectual power, uh, of uh, originality, uh, of brilliance, is really an 18th century notion. Uh, and yet there are all kinds of precedents uh, for that 18th century figure. And so in the book, I, I try to trace uh, those precedents and look at the ways in which other peoples other in other times have conceived of figures who have something that others don't. Um, and the, the Greeks and then the Romans are, are, are interested in this uh, kind of figure. Um, the, the great Roman statesman Cicero uh, describes these kind of figures as having a quidum divinum, a divine something that sets them apart. Truly eminent poets and statesmen and uh, uh, creators have something that others don't. And so uh, the Greeks uh, and, and Romans, like other ancient peoples, are trying to kind of put their finger on what that, that something is. One of the answers that they, they give, and in, in fact Cicero is referring to this directly with the quidum duinum, is that uh, eminent individuals uh, have a special connection to the gods or to God. Indeed, they may be godlike themselves. Uh, and a wonderful example of this, and one of the examples with which I begin, is Socrates. Uh, Socrates, the great philosopher who, as you know, is described by the oracle at Del Delphi as the, the wisest man who lives. Mm -hmm. um, Socrates, a man who sort of, you know, mystifies his, his contemporaries, and who is also widely believed to have had his own private god or demon, his daimonion, as is always referred to uh, by Plato and Xenophon and other, uh, others who knew him and wrote about him. Mm -hmm. The daimonion is, is just the diminutive of the, the Greek word daimon, uh, which is the origin of our modern word demon, um, and it can have a kind of negative connotation as it does in, in English. Uh, but for the Greeks, the daimon wasn't necessarily a, a, an evil demon. That's, in fact, it's Christians who later sort of make the, the concept uh, exclusively evil. Mm -hmm. A daimon was a, a, was a personal guardian spirit, like a guardian angel. Um, and the Greeks believed that many people had uh, daimonis, had, 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 had little, little demons, little gods. Uh, but Socrates was believed to have been more powerful than others. Now, in, uh, in 
in Plato and in Xenophon, uh, a contemporary of, of Socrates and historian, um, we're told that the daimonian of, of, of Socrates simply told him when he shouldn't do something. It kind of put a break on, on his actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the stories that are told about Socrates after his death, the daimonian uh, kind of takes on a greater power. Um, and you get chroniclers describing this, this private god that gave Socrates special insight into the divine, gave Socrates a kind of vision that no other mortal had into the essence uh, of reality. And there's a whole tradition then that, divi- that, that, that grows up around this idea uh, that, that poets, that seers, that prophets are inspired. Right? Uh, inspire is an important word here. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes from the Latin term inspirare. It just means to breathe into. Um, and, and the idea is that um, the inspired poet is breathed into by God or by gods. Uh, and filled up with a kind of divine uh, a flatus, a divine uh, breath. Um, and that tradition, uh, in fact, is the origin of the, the title of my book, uh, Divine Fury, which is Plato's term, the philosopher Plato's term, uh, for the, the, the mania or fury that grips the poet or prophet uh, in the kind of ecstasy of, of, of a creative or uh, inspired frenzy. Mm-hmm. Now, in Plato, that's a, a slightly negative concept. Uh, Plato, Plato thinks that Poets are kind of dangerous and a little crazy, mm-hmm. and he's mocking them in some ways. But it's, it's a link to this older tradition uh, that, that, in fact, predates Socrates, uh, that special individuals um, uh, have something godlike, have a, a divine something, a quidum divinum. Plato wrote about the processes that uh, priestesses and oracles followed uh, to make predictions and Plato suggested that the process was some kind of mystical madness but he insisted uh, that these forms of divine madness were not any form of uh, sickness of disease. Correct and uh, as I say in his description of them and, and he does this in several of his, his dialogues he, he, you know, on the one hand, Plato, of course, admires uh, poets and, and poetic language and understands their force and their power. Uh, but he also, he also presents poets and prophets as empty vessels, right? Empty vessels who are filled uh, with uh, the breath uh, or the wine of the gods. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a, a wonderful uh, illustration or evocation of this uh, right at the beginning of both the Iliad uh, and the Odyssey, uh, you know, the foundational text of Western literature, when, 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 when Homer says, you know, sing in me muse, right, uh, of the god of twist and turns, or the man of twist and turns, sing in me, right? In other words, inhabit me, gods, muse, right? Embody me, take me over. Mm-hmm. And for, for Plato, in Plato's presentation of this, it's as if the poet doesn't have anything to begin with, right? The poet is filled up by the gods, uh, and that may be the stuff of inspiration, uh, but he's He's, he's mocking it a little bit, too. Uh, he's making fun of it a little bit, too. Nonetheless, as that tradition develops over time, um, the kind of negative connotations, not entirely, and in fact, they're revived, they not entirely drop out, but in some ways, uh, they do. Um, and people think of the inspired poet, uh, the inspired artist, the inspired seer as having something special, something special. Um, I should point out, though, that, you know, that, that, that for Plato, this, this inspiration is a kind of mania. It's a kind of madness. And as a consequence, it does have a link to um, mental instability. It has a link to uh, uh, sickness, 
to irrationality. And that's, in fact, uh, a link uh, to genius that has uh, a long, uh, long afterlife. And there's a, another way in which uh, ancient Greeks thought about this as well. Um, in fact, this is not Plato so much as, as uh, uh, his student Aristotle and Aristotle's mm-hmm. students, um, who believed that um, human beings were, uh, human constitutions were organized by, by four principal humors, right? Mm-hmm. A black mm-hmm. bile, yellow bile, blood, uh, and so forth. And of course, we still use these terms today. We talk of people as sanguine when they're uh, optimistic, when they have a lot of blood. We talk about people as choleric when they have uh, too much choler or, or, or bile and so forth. And what Aristotle, or at least his uh, students, uh, suggest in a, in a couple of important texts is that eminent individuals, eminent poets, eminent statesmen, philosophers, and the like, seem to be prone to diseases of, of black bile, melancholy, right? Melancholy is the, just the, the Greek for uh, black bile. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what, what Aristotelian, in the Aristotelian tradition, the suggestion is that these kind of eminent figures uh, have something that others don't. Their humoral constitution is different. They have more black bile. But a consequence of that is mental instability, depression, madness at the extreme. And so in both these traditions, the Platonic and the Aristotelian, there's a connection between genius and madness. And it turns out that that, that uh, connection is sort of forged and reforged time and again uh, down through the Renaissance and the 19th century. And you still hear this uh, association trotted out uh, fairly frequently that the geniuses are they're different, right? They're, uh, they're, they're somewhat unstable, eccentric. Uh, like Einstein, they forget to wear their socks, you know. They have mad hair, and, mm. and, and, and maybe they're a little bit mad themselves. How did the concept of uh, genius evolve uh, during the period uh, from ancient Greece to Roman times? Right. Well, again, I want to be very careful in, the, in, in saying that the, the notion of genius itself uh, is a is a modern concept, mm-hmm. um, and <clears throat> it presupposes things about original creativity uh, and insight that uh, ancient uh, observers wouldn't wouldn't have associated with with uh, creators. To give you one good example, I and mean, we think of uh, the association between genius and art uh, as as being a very close one. Well, artists for uh, the Romans, like for the Greeks, were artisans first and foremost. They were people who worked with their hands. They weren't special creators in the kind of modern sense. And that's not a notion that really originates until the Renaissance. Um, and so we need to make uh, uh, you know, distinctions between a modern and ancient uh, notion of genius. Mm-hmm. One thing, though, what we can do, and I, I do in the book, is look at the word itself. And the word genius in, uh, in English is just a, a, a term borrowed directly from the Latin, spelled exactly the same way, uh, probably pronounced genius. Um, and the genius uh, figure in uh, Roman culture uh, was not a, a great um, uh, creative individual of, of, of brilliance and high IQ. The genius was uh, a reiteration of this Greek notion of the daimon or the daimonian, a private tutelary spirit or angel who attended all, uh, all males. And in fact, uh, the notion of genius from very early on uh, has a kind of uh, misogyn- misogyny built into it. The geniuses are assumed to be males. Males are assumed to be uh, different from uh, women, and women are assumed not to have the stuff of, of genius. And so in this Roman cult, um, all males are attended by uh, a, a private god, a god of birth, uh, as it turns out. 
uh, and the word genius uh, has um, uh, links to the uh, the Latin verb genogenere, which is the the word to generate or to father or to beget. It gives us words like genes and and, and genitals. And so there's an association between this figure and and birth. And indeed, you uh, one would honor your genius figure on uh, on one's birthday pouring out a little libation of wine and putting flowers before an altar or so forth. And in fact, if you go to almost any uh, European uh, museum to this day in the antiquity section, you can probably find votive figures to these uh, private um, uh, tutelary uh, genius or, or genie um, uh, to this day. Mm-hmm. There's a link, in fact, between this Roman concept and a later Christian notion of, of a guardian angel. Um, and, and in fact, that, that link is fairly close, even though there are other precedents for, for angels in, in Greek and, and, and Jewish culture. But um, it seems fairly clear that this guardian uh, figure was, uh, was in some ways the, the model for thinking about a guardian angel. And again, that takes us to this idea that, that individuals uh, are attended to uh, by uh, a spiritual figure and that special individuals have special uh, guardian figures. Uh, guardian figures like Socrates' Daimonian that are, are, are bigger, stronger, better uh, than the, the, the spirits or, or gods that attend to uh, ordinary individuals. Darren, uh, how did Romans uh, try to understand uh, and describe the genius that lent Julius Caesar his military might and Homer uh, his charms? Exactly. Well, uh, in, in just these terms, that, mm. that that Caesar had something uh, that ordinary individuals didn't, that the, the eminence of Caesar, Caesar derived in some ways uh, from his uh, special relation to the divine. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when Caesar dies and when Octavian um, uh, you know, is trying to assume his place, there's, uh, uh, the, the story is told that a comet appears in the sky. Uh, and in fact, there's an astrological connection between uh, comets Uh, and this notion of the of the genius figure, uh, who is sometimes thought to uh, return on on the death of an individual uh, uh, to the heavens or to attend to a planet, um, and um, so the comet appearing in the sky is sort of a symbol uh, of 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 Caesar's uh, divine uh, connection that he was a godlike man uh, that he uh, indeed may have been a god himself, and so uh, Caesar's greatness again is a has a link to divine and this is this is a point that i try to trace all the way through the book that um <clears throat> when human beings have thought of these special individuals um they've always associated them with with the gods or or with god and that as it turns out doesn't entirely change even in the modern period when men and women try to understand the modern genius figure in more secular terms uh there is nonetheless still a kind of religious connection uh to these figures and it and it's what gives Uh, the modern genius figure, some of its uh, cultural power, uh, but also um, creates some problems, as I try to try to point out. It has been said that Alexander was the first famous person. Was he seen as a genius uh, at that time? Alexander the Great wouldn't have been described uh, in uh, in the terms of uh, of the modern genius, but he certainly astounded the whole uh, of the ancient world. Um, and was thought of as, you know, being <laughs> unlike any uh, individual who had ever lived. People make pilgrimages. Octavian famously makes pilgrimages to uh, his uh, uh, gravesite. Um, uh, he's thought of um, 
as uh, extraordinary and eminent. Um, and so, yes, uh, he too uh, is uh, a kind of divine man, a godlike man, who was able to do things that no other human being has ever done. How did early Christians uh, conceive their great men? Uh, did they introduce um, a new concept to describe their great men or the existing notion of genius was modified and adopted? Well, both. Um, of course, on the one hand, Christians can have nothing to do with these uh, ancient uh, pagan cults of, uh, of demons and gods. And mm-hmm. from a Christian perspective, all the ancient gods are in fact demons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so the world is full of demons or daimonis after uh, the Christian advent. Uh, and yet on the other hand, um, these models of, of eminent individuals uh, as either a, a embodying something special, having a bit of, uh, of the divine implanted in them from birth, having a special kind of uh, humoral arrangement or a special arrangement of the soul that allows them to do things that other people can't, that remains And so too does this idea of divine inspiration, right? You can just substitute uh, the Holy Spirit uh, uh, or uh, angels uh, for uh, a daimonian or for uh, the muses, uh, and you still have this idea of the inspired, enthralled uh, seer. And so uh, one of the things that happens are are these kind of ancient uh, classical notions of extraordinary individuals get uh, get Christianized. I referred to this before, but the whole cult, the Roman cult of the, uh, the private god, the genius figure, uh, it's Christianized so that you have in late antiquity and then into the Middle Ages notions of, 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 of guardian uh, angels, mm-hmm. actually also notions of a guardian demon. Sometimes one uh, has a good angel and a bad angel, just as uh, the Romans often believed that one could have a, an evil genius or a good genius as a guardian. Uh, you also have a notion of patron saints, saints being extraordinary individuals who are unlike any other, unlike any other because they have a special connection to, uh, to God, to, to the divine. And they themselves, uh, upon their deaths, serve as intercessors to the divine. They uh, watch over um, their charges. Uh, and so uh, individuals take saints uh, and have saints days on their day of birth. Uh, and so this whole kind of Christian cult of uh, the patron saint or the guardian angel in some ways replaces this older notion, uh, uh, this older Roman notion of a, of a guardian keeper. Uh, but you retain this idea that <clears throat> the extraordinarily gifted, um, uh, the, the eminent, uh, have a divine connection, that they are godlike, that they have privilege into, uh, uh, a privilege seeing into the, into the fabric of the universe because of their proximity uh, to, um, to, 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 to God. Let us focus on the Renaissance. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Michelangelo, they were the geniuses of their time. How was the concept of genius understood at that time? You're absolutely right uh, that, that figures like Michelangelo, like Leonardo, like Raphael and others, these kind of super artists emerge in the Renaissance period. Um, as heroes in ways that they hadn't been previously. And in fact, later, particularly in the Romantic period in the early 19th century, um, there's a tendency to uh, identify some of these figures, like Michelangelo, like Leonardo, uh, and to associate them with modern notions of genius. Uh, And that's continued in a a scholarship, in some ways to the present day, 
um, where people refer to these figures as modern geniuses. And so um, you can emphasize uh, aspects of Michelangelo's uh, creative power and his brilliance, his uh, fecundity, his, um, uh, his innovations, and so forth. And, and, and he seems uh, like a, a genius in the modern mold. One of the things that I try to point out in the book is that uh, although uh, in certain respects uh, Michelangelo uh, is doing things that, that no one had before had done, his contemporaries still weren't um, comfortable with the notion of originality in the way that, uh, that we are. Mm -hmm. um, for us in the modern period, um, the, the thing that geniuses do is introduce, as, as Wordsworth says, a, a kind of new uh, uh, notion, a new idea into the intellectual universe. Geniuses innovate, they create, they do what no one else has ever done before. And we take that as a, a matter of course now, and of course we have a whole kind of copyright uh, uh, law um, that, that develops around this idea, that creators of ideas own those ideas. In the Renaissance, and for some time thereafter, and this is true not just in Europe, but I would argue in every culture, um, the, the idea of creation doesn't work in the same way. Either the world has always existed, as was the case for Plato, or it was created at a certain point in time by God. And when God created the universe, he created everything in it and the potential for everything. And so in Christian theology, the word create, the verb create, is only used in reference to God. Humans don't create, right? Solus Deus creat, as, as, as Thomas Aquinas says. Uh, only God alone creates, right? Humans recreate. They copy. They perform mimesis. In other words, they reproduce uh, the forms that have existed for all eternity. Uh, they, they reproduce God's perfection in nature. They reproduce God's perfection uh, in, in ideas. Um, and that idea is not really a challenge until the, the, the modern notion of genius emerges in the 18th century. So for the Renaissance, even though it's clear to us that Michelangelo or Leonardo or Raphael are, is, they're doing things that no one else had done before, the terms in which contemporaries had to describe what they were doing was that they were, again, godlike. Michelangelo is literally Michael of the Angels, as his name implies. He is angelic. Uh, he is divine. And indeed, this very term, duinus, begins to be used about artists and creators, architects, Brunelleschi, people like, like this, uh, for the first time in this period, where previously the, the term duinus, divine, had been uh, reserved for saints or for holy men in the, in the Christian tradition. And so... Um, my, my point here is that, uh, that uh, Michelangelo would have said that he was reproducing or recreating God's perfection and the perfection of his universe and doing this in a more perfect way, but that he wasn't uh, bringing something new into the intellectual universe uh, in the way that uh, we think of uh, geniuses doing in a, in a kind of more modern, modern period. And yet, having said all that, there's no question that, that these figures, these super artists, um, have a kind of uh, cultural power 
that begins to uh, resemble something like uh, the geniuses of the modern period. Right? When Michelangelo dies, uh, his funeral is attended uh, by princes, uh, people literally touch his body as if he were a saint. Right? And there are stories told that his body doesn't decay, uh, that it's not subject to uh, a putrefaction, that it's a putrefaction, that it's just simply um, uh, you know, uh, perfectly preserved f- uh, flesh as if he were uh, a divine figure himself. And so we're getting close to a modern notion of genius uh, with these Renaissance figures, but we're not quite there yet. You suggest that genius emerges as a cultural hero uh, in 18th century. Why is this so? Why 18th century? Sure. Well, it's an important question, and um, and others have, have tried to answer it before. And I, I would want to say first off that there are a lot of things going on. And any time you talk about a major cultural change, a major historical change, uh, it's almost certainly the case that the, the causes uh, for that change will be uh, multi-causal. There will be many. And I think that there are a number of important things going on. Um, people have pointed out, for example, that um, you know, this is uh, a period that sees the emergence of commercial society. Uh, and there's a kind of new um, focus on um, innovating in order to bring uh, products uh, uh, to market um, in a way that I think tracks nicely with the new notion of, uh, of creation and creativity. Uh, contemporaries themselves point this out. Um, they, 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 they point out that uh, a kind of brilliance or genius is needed uh, to be effective in the marketplace in the same way that it is uh, to be effective in the world of ideas. Uh, and there's a whole later um, uh, sort of um, uh, scholarship that, that links the sort of changes, economic changes, to uh, the notion of, uh, of genius. There's a Marxian uh, tradition that sees the genius figure as the kind of embodiment of, 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 of bourgeois uh, creativity and a new notion of the, the bourgeois uh, creator. There's also been uh, really interesting work uh, on the changes uh, in the social conditions, uh, of artists and creators in the 18th century who are moving um, from a world in which they, for the most part, are taken uh, care of by patrons uh, and princes uh, into a world in which, um, for the first time, really, they're kind of thrown um, on, 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 onto their own uh, resources. A good example of this is Mozart, right? Uh, he's kept in Salzburg, um, uh, uh, by princes, but he can't, he can't quite deal with this. He's constrained, he can't innovate, he's having to produce boring music for uh, what he thinks of as boring people, and so he strikes out on his own. And of course, this is very difficult for him. Uh, and even uh, somebody with the, with the gifts and powers of Mozart uh, finds it difficult to, uh, to make it on his own. One of the ways you make it as, on your own, though, is to emphasize your, your gifts, your uniqueness why you are li- unlike anyone else. And so there's a tradition of scholarship that also looks at uh, the way in which the artist or the writer is created or self-created in this period uh, as a way to emphasize um, uh, difference to, to bring um, uh, ideas and, um, and, and, and creation to the marketplace. I, though, want to look at some other factors, and we could, you know, we could look at other, uh, other things that his scholars have talked about before, but I want to emphasize uh, two sort of uh, contexts. Mm-hmm. And one is religious. And it seems fairly clear that the 18th century uh, is, a, is a time of religious change. I think historians in the past have tended to emphasize 
uh, that uh, overemphasize the degree of that change. You sometimes hear, uh, and still in fact hear, scholars talking about the 18th century as, in, as the Enlightenment as a kind of period of atheism and so forth. And I think for the vast majority of men and women in the 18th century, uh, uh, there's still a notion of a creator uh, of a god. And yet, the way they understand that god uh, has, has changed. Uh, there's a French philosopher by the name of uh, Marcel Gaucher, whom I uh, follow fairly closely in the book, um, who picks up on an insight of the great uh, German sociologist Max Weber uh, to develop a notion uh, of disenchantment. Uh, and in Gaucher's reading, one of the things that happens in the 17th and 18th century is that uh, men and women have a sense that God, while by no means absent from the universe, is nonetheless less present than before, that God is withdrawing, moving back from the creation. Uh, and so in Gaucher's reading, this leaves human beings, on the one hand, with a sense of anxiety, as if they exist in a world that is lonelier than uh, it had been before, but also it also seeds them uh, new realms uh, for agency and action. They can uh, uh, imagine acting in a world uh, uh, in which God doesn't control all the laws on their own terms. The other thing that happens in the 18th century is that these mediating figures that I've been referring to, these daimonists, these uh, saints, these angels, mm -hmm. figures that for all men, all human beings throughout the whole of human history have always mediated between God's and the, God, uh, and the divine and ordinary mortals, right? There had always been a kind of hierarchy of, of, uh, uh, of being, a great chain of being, and human beings had conceived higher beings on this great chain. Many people in the 18th century, in, in the Enlightenment, begin to discount uh, the existence of these beings. They scoff at a notion of angels or saints or demons. Not everyone does this, of course, but, but large numbers of people. And so one of the things that I want to argue is that the combination of this withdrawal of God on the one hand and the sort of sweeping of the heavens of these intermediary figures who had long been conceived as um, standing between ordinary uh, mortals and the divine, the combination of, of that two things creates an, a space, an opening. And it's into this space or opening that the, the notion of the genius emerges. And the genius is conceived in some ways on the model of these older figures. And indeed, uh, if you take somebody like Isaac Newton, for example, this is very clear. Isaac Newton, after his death, is treated in some ways like a saint, and he's presented this way. Uh, people literally have kind of icons, you know, uh, of, of, of Newton in their homes. He's buried in Westminster Abbey, uh, the resting place of saints. And he's said to have had special and privileged insight into the fabric of the universe. He's, he's, he's somehow divine, right? Um, and he's one example of many that I, that I follow in the book of the way in which these new figures then are imagined, these, these new modern geniuses are imagined as, as standing between ordinary mortals and the divine, but also uh, as claiming some of uh, the divine power, the godlike power. So I referred to earlier this idea that in, at least in Christian theology, uh, that creation was the sole privilege of God. Well, in the 18th century, you begin to talk about individuals creating, bringing something new into the world, creating ex nihilo from nothing, just like gods. Uh, and geniuses have that power. They have the power to, uh, to reveal the laws of the universe, like Newton. They have the power to 
see into its fabric, to see into our souls, to reveal to us things uh, that ordinary human beings can't see, even to predict and prophecy for the future. And this is something that uh, is talked about uh, fairly often, that the geniuses, geniuses somehow have a kind of um, uh, privileged insight into what, what is developing on the horizon of humanity, what is uh, developing going forward. In one of your publications, you suggest that French Revolution uh, gave us the cult of genius. Well, the, the cult of genius by the time of the French Revolution is up and running, and it's up and running well. Uh, it's, it's, it's particularly strong in, uh, in the Germanies and in France, uh, but also in Great Britain uh, and, and its uh, uh, colonies and former colonies in the New World. Benjamin Franklin emerges as a kind of genius figure, uh, the first great American genius in, in, in this cult. But you're absolutely right to say that the, the French Revolution um, uh, crystallizes this cult. Um, the, the French revolutionaries have this problem um, in the sense that they're getting rid of the old regime, the ancien regime, the former regime, and they want to create a new world. And they want to create that world from nothing, but yet they need to claim uh, a, a patrimony for that world. They need to, to claim a, a kind of uh, a line of forefathers who've created the conditions for the emergence of this new world. And one of the ways they do that is by um, uh, creating a list of, of, of sort of revolutionaries before the fact, right? Saints, as you were, uh, if you would. And they put those saints in a former church, the, the Church of Saint Genevieve, which is now heart, in the heart of the Sorbonne and, and the Sixth uh, Arrondissement in, in Paris. Um, and we know it as the Pantheon, the Pantheon um, uh, on the model of the Roman Pantheon, where you, it's the resting place of the, the great men uh, of the Patria. Mm-hmm. And who do the, the French put in the, the, the Pantheon uh, at the time of the French Revolution? Well, uh, they put people like Voltaire, right, uh, who was uh, hailed as a genius uh, in the 18th century. They put people like Rousseau, uh, who was hailed uh, as a genius. Uh, they put people like Mirabeau, uh, who was a revolutionary leader and uh, uh, an orator and who was also thought of as a kind of genius figure. Um, and then out of all this emerges... Uh, the figure, of course, of Napoleon. And Napoleon is a critical figure in my book. Uh, he's a critical figure in the history of genius, in part because he's the first to appreciate the power uh, of this label and this cult. There's no question that Napoleon has uh, incredible uh, abilities and capacities. Uh, he's a, uh, a visionary uh, uh, general uh, and soldier. Uh, he's a very effective administrator. Uh, people uh, marvel at his mind. He can walk into a stateroom with the crowned heads of Europe and they, they think of him as uh, an intimidating figure. But if you think about it for a second, you know, who is Napoleon? He's a, a kind of minor and very minor uh, aristocrat from Corsica. Uh, he can't claim dynastic lineage. He can't claim great uh, aristocratic uh, uh, heraldry. Um, he can't really claim democratic mandate for his rule, even though he sort of tries to, to fudge that a little bit. So how does a person like Napoleon legitimate his power? Mm-hmm. Well, in part by claiming genius claiming genius on the back of a whole century that's proclaimed the genius is the highest human type, the genius is a kind of special uh, uh, human being who can do things that ordinary human beings can't. 
Um, and so one of the things that I try to point out in the book, and I think this is something that historians have, have, have missed to some degree, is that uh, not only is there a cult of Napoleon's genius after the fact, but there's a cult of Napoleon's genius from the very beginning. And Napoleon himself very self-consciously uh, uses that cult to enhance his power. He's referred to as the genius, le génie, uh, by, um, uh, by priests in Sunday sermons during his reign. Um, his... Um, his propaganda organs refer to him uh, as the, the genius and a man who um, has more intelligence in one finger than ordinary human beings have in their whole of their body, a man who can do things that ordinary mortals can't. Um, and so Napoleon becomes this critical figure because he, he sort of instrumentalizes the cult of genius that exists in the 18th century and also sort of points to what uh, it can do. He's treated uh, in some ways uh, as, as, as a god, uh, a god who can use that power for better or for worse. Um, because uh, geniuses, uh, again, have this long connection to evil and to madness, uh, and there's always the, the worry um, that, that a genius will abuse uh, uh, his power. An important point that I would like to touch upon here is that uh, that was the time uh, when there was huge interest in finding out what was so special about these geniuses. How were they different? Uh, how were their skulls different? How were their brains different? Absolutely. And, you know, this is, becomes a very interesting story. So one of the things that happens in the 18th century is that genius gets defined as uh, something that's original and inherent in us. Okay? Um, we didn't talk about this earlier, but the Romans, in addition to this cult of genius, have a notion of ingenium, which is, in fact, uh, closely related to the word genius. It's just the accusative form of, uh, of the word genius, um, the genius in us, as it were. Mm-hmm. And ingenium is a kind of a natural, inherent uh, talent or, 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 or power, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, ingenium may be a natural aptitude for mathematics or for uh, sports or for uh, what, what have you, but it's thought of as a kind of natural, uh, natural endowment or gift. And one of the things that happens linguistically is that in the Renaissance period, the word genius in Latin and then ingenium get fused. So the modern notion of genius has embedded in it, as it were, this tradition of thinking about natural gifts and also uh, gifts that are uh, in, in inspired or breathed into us by uh, a god or gods. Well, in the 18th century, they're getting rid of these uh, demons and angels and figures, as I've said. They can't think of genius as something that is God-given or uh, as a direct uh, gift of an angel or uh, of an inspired frenzy. In fact, most people in the, in, in the 18th century in the Enlightenment are very skeptical of, 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 of what they call enthusiasm, which again is a kind of idea that you can be embodied by a god. They're coming on the back of uh, centuries of religious wars in which all kinds of figures had claimed direct access to God and gods and had started revolutions and caused bloodshed um, on the basis of those claims. And so from the Enlightenment perspective, we want to get away from this idea of, of special, uh, special inspiration and think of genius as an inherent gift, um, something that uh, can't be learned can't be acquired, that you either have it or you don't. In fact, this is one of the uh, sort of myths that develops around genius, that there's a fundamental distinction between genius and talent. Mm-hmm. Talent's something you can learn. You can learn how to be a good piano player, but you can't learn how to be Mozart, right? Mozart has something that, that others don't, uh, that Napoleon has a, uh, has a God-given uh, or inborn gift that others don't. Well, that then poses the question of what is this gift? And a science develops, as you suggest, beginning in the 18th century, to sort of put one's finger on this. 
Now, from the perspective of the 21st century, much of this science seems like pseudoscience, but it wasn't thought of uh, that way at the time. Um, one of the earliest examples of this is physiognomy, um, uh, the idea that you can kind of read a person's character by looking at their face. And the father of mm-hmm. uh, physiognomy uh, is, a, is a Swiss, Swiss a theologian and uh, uh, natural scientist and, and man of letters by the name of Lafater. Lafater is very interested in identifying genius, right? Wouldn't it be great if we could figure out who geniuses were just by looking at their faces? And so he has great studies on this. Well, that tradition continues in the 20th century. Uh, in fact, I draw attention to a, a, a German psychologist in the book who actually wins the Nobel Prize in 1929 mm-hmm. who was interested in the exact same thing, uh, how you can identify genius by looking at people's uh, facial features. Another example is phrenology, right? The idea that you can uh, read the bumps on one's head to get a sense of how their skull is formed, and that will give you uh, uh, knowledge about how the brain uh, underlying it um, uh, looks. And uh, phrenologists uh, are, are terribly interested in uh, um, the extremes or outliers on either side of the continuum. They're interested in um, what they call cretins, right, of people with retardation or, or, or abnormalities of the brain, but then also uh, uh, geniuses, right, the special. Um, this leads in turn to a whole science that develops in the 19th century around studying the skulls and brains themselves of geniuses. There's also uh, this kind of uh, wacky uh, medical science that's very important on the continent, but also uh, to some extent in, uh, in, 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 in Great Britain, although less so than, than in Germany and France, um, which associates genius uh, with, uh, with sickness, with illness, and sees genius as a kind of positive side effect uh, of, um, uh, of degenerative disease. Uh, this is it's called degeneration theory, and one of the the best and also kind of wackiest examples of this is uh, an Italian uh, man. Uh, he's a, a doctor, a psychologist by the name of Cesare uh, Lombroso. Uh, and Lombroso, um, in addition to other things, was a criminologist, and he believed that you could you could look at people and you could identify uh, on the basis of their uh, characteristics or their stigmata, as he calls it. Um, uh, their, their potential for criminality, their inherent illness. And he believes the exact same about geniuses. Geniuses, he says, are sick, they're ill. Uh, and this explains their neuroses and their kind of uh, quirks and, and uh, their originality. Um, uh, but it's also a link to this older notion that, as I say, goes all the way back to uh, uh, an Aristotelian tradition, a Platonic tradition of divine fury, uh, between genius and madness, and the medical science of the 19th century wants to draw this really strong connection. I, I love telling the story when I talk about this degeneration theory mm-hmm. uh, of the great French novelist Emile Zola. Uh, Zola, the, the, the naturalist writer, believes that he's a genius, um, and he also believes in this degeneration theory, this medical science that sees a link between uh, illness and, 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 and genius. And so he has himself examined by a whole team of French psychologists who conclude that he is indeed a genius, uh, but he's fortunate that his disease is not so far uh, along that he's only mildly neurotic. He's not, you know, full-on mad. Uh, (laughs) But it's a good example of the way in which contemporaries sort of buy into this idea that, you know, that that geniuses are are always going to be a little bit unstable, a little bit dangerous, a little bit quirky, and yet uh, they they can do things uh, as a consequence that that regular uh, mortals can. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I would just say to uh, kind of to, to finish the point is mm-hmm. that uh, the search for genius, where it inheres, in the brain, in the skull, uh, in facial features, in the physiology of the body, 
culminates um, at the very end of the 19th and early 20th century uh, in the search for an intelligence quotient. And indeed, uh, the figures who are kind of pivotal in, 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 in pushing this uh, notion along, the, the Frenchman Binet and then uh, uh, an American psychologist by the name of Louis Terman, who is an acolyte of, of Binet and also of uh, Francis Galton in the United Kingdom, are, are very interested in genius, uh, and, and they have been interested in some of this, this kind of wacky science as well. Um, uh, Binet, for example, is, is very interested in craniometry. And so um, it, I think it's important to see the intelligence quotient um, and the notion of an IQ uh, as coming out of a, a sort of century or a century and a half of the search for genius in us um, uh, that, that emerges out of this, um, this cult of genius in, in the 18th century. Another interesting notion that emerged in the same period was the notion of equality, that all human beings are equal, all human beings are same. So if we all are same, then who are these geniuses among us? How come they are different? Uh, how did the emergence of the notion of equality change our views about the concept of genius? Well, you put your finger on a really interesting paradox, and it's, you know, uh, it's this kind of odd fact that um, the very same century, the 18th century, that gives birth to a notion of a genius as a special creation, the genius as unlike any other individual, the genius who is, as, as Francis Galton will say, and Galton, his first book is, is, just, is hereditary genius in the 19th century, and he's interested in you know, how you identify geniuses in a population pool, and he says the geniuses uh, exist on the statistical order of one in 10 million, right? Uh, and so at the same century, in the 18th century, that gives birth to that notion that culminates in the 19th century, the geniuses are fundamentally distinct from ordinary human beings. They can do things that no one else can, is also the century that sees the emergence uh, of a belief in human equality, right? Uh, the self-evident truth, as Thomas Jefferson says in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. And there are those in the 18th century, in fact, in, in, in significant numbers, who believe that not only are we created equal in terms of the rights that we should have access to, but actually in our, our human potential and capacities. And so these two ideas are in conflict. And that's a theme that I try to to follow throughout the book, um, and I see it as another important context for under, uh, understanding genius that the historians and scholars have mm -hmm. missed, that the genius figure becomes a kind of antidote uh, 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 to a notion of equality, and it's marshaled in the 19th and 20th centuries uh, as a way to resist uh, a, a notion of equality. So Galton, whom I've just mentioned, uh, is a good example of this. Francis Galton Tom, uh, Charles Darwin's cousin, uh, the, the father, uh, as you know, of eugenics, um, is, you know, uh, is, is adamantly opposed to the idea that human beings are equal. He said, they're just not. Just look at the science, he says, right? Um, and so he's very invested in, in a notion of uh, people who are extremes, outliers, who are uh, on one end of the bell curve. And of course, uh, Galton is using a notion uh, of, a, of a bell curve uh, to explain the kind of statistics behind uh, uh, population pools um, on, on all kinds of things, from height to, uh, um, um, to, to intelligence. Okay? And so he's interested in those extremes, and he says, you know, the, the, the people on the edge uh, of the bell curve, the outliers, that's the 2% uh, uh, of, of humanity, they're the ones who make ideas. They're the ones who innovate. They're the ideas who lead. 
They're the ideas, uh, the ones who cause revolution. And we ought to empower those human beings. Because if we don't, we're going to be ruled by the masses. We're going to uh, give way to mediocrity. And that's a very powerful idea in the 19th century and into the 20th century. And it's used, and the cult of the genius is used uh, as a way to kind of resist what is seen as the dangers uh, of, of, of an encroaching equality. Now, the, the flip side to this is that in... Um, the time of the French Revolution, in the time of the American Revolution, and in um, uh, sort of progressive circles uh, in Europe and, and, and Great Britain in the 19th century, um, there's a recognition that um, you know this this idea that all human innovation happens because of uh, great men is is, is is spacious. That actually ordinary uh, men and women have a lot to do with change, uh, and that in fact uh, ordinary men and women, if given the right uh, conditions, if given uh, exposure and education, have the capacity to do really uh, interesting and important things. And so you get the notion already in the 18th century and develops in the 19th century um, that that the idea of the individual genius is a kind of mystification, um, and that all human beings have the capacity to do something special, that all of us have a genius, going back to that kind of Roman idea, um, a genius for something, right? And it may not be mathematics or physics, uh, it may not be for writing symphonies, uh, uh, but it may be for something, and the, the goal is to try to identify that in, uh, capacity and to... Um, uh, and, and to develop it. And I see that idea as a sort of existing in the 19th century and really coming uh, to the fore uh, after the Second World War when an older cult of genius uh, is, is kind of um, discredited. And um, uh, there's in some ways a kind of triumph of democracy. Um, uh, one of the figures who identifies this, I think, this, this uh, development well is uh, the great uh, French commentator on America, Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, and in his, his great two-volume, Democracy in America, which is a kind of reflection on America as an image of the future for, for France and for Europe, Tocqueville says, you know, <clears throat> America doesn't have geniuses. <laughs> and he doesn't mean that in an invidious way. He, he's not saying that America doesn't have great mm -hmm. thinkers, um, but that it doesn't have a model for the great thinkers on a European um, uh, uh, European precedent, that um, what America does is empower large numbers of people, and it turns out that, or at least Tocqueville suggests, that, um, you know, that in some ways many heads can be better than one, right? That, um, that if you uh, educate large numbers of people, um, you can still do kind of amazing things in terms of technology and, uh, um, uh, and science and the like um, without the extraordinary uh, individuals, which he sees in some ways as growing out of a kind of more European and aristocratic tradition. Okay. Uh, by extrapolating the main points that you have highlighted in this discussion, can we now develop a present-day description of genius? So if I ask you to define the idea of genius, uh, how would you proceed? How would you start? How would I start to define a genius today? Well, let me say a couple things. Um, and one is that, um, and this is uh, a theme that I take up at, at length in the book, is that for reasons that I've been discussing, um, the, this kind of religious association with genius 
that is in turn validated by a science or pseudoscience uh, in the 19th century that has these kind of uh, eugenic underpinnings. Uh, it's often uh, explicitly racist uh, as well. Um, in, the, in the science of genius in the 19th century, uh, it's always European males uh, who are, are geniuses and, and, and no one else. But the combination of this kind of religious overtones and this, this science of genius um, uh, creates the conditions for disturbing things. And as I try to argue in the book and show, um, uh, it's Adolf Hitler, strangely, who um, instrumentalizes this very strong cult of genius in German culture and successfully presents himself to the German people uh, mm -hmm. as a genius and uses that very self-consciously to enhance his, the mystique of his power. That's a whole other story I mentioned here, though, because after uh, the Second World War, um, much of this uh, genius science that I'm talking about uh, has been discredited by its association with eugenics. The cult of genius as great men itself uh, uh, is, uh, it tends to be uh, frowned upon and looked askance at. Um, and so the, the, the religion of genius, as I style it, um, in some ways uh, dies off, and there we see the, the kind of really gathering force of this idea that, that all uh, human beings have, have uh, the capacity for, for something important. Um, the, other, the, other, the other thing I would say, though, uh, in conjunction to answer your question, how do we think of geniuses now, is that the notion of genius emerges, interestingly, at the very same time as the emergence of the notion of celebrity. Um, uh, celebrity is also an 18th century uh, uh, phenomena. In fact, I have a, a close colleague in France, Antoine Louty, who's just published a really important book on the emergence of, of the notion of celebrity. People like Benjamin Franklin and uh, uh, and uh, Mozart when he's a young child, Beethoven when he's older, are, are in, in fact kinds of celebrities. Einstein is a better example of that in the 20th century. Now, unlike Paris Hilton, they have to be famous for more than just being famous, to have to have something geniuses, and yet there's a close connection between genius and celebrity. And I think that that's um, very much to the fore today, that geniuses um, and, and celebrities or media figures uh, go hand in hand. And a good example of this, and here's a definition of a modern genius, right, would be Steve Jobs, right? And no one doubts that Steve Jobs was a visionary figure mm -hmm. uh, and that he had a capacity to imagine a kind of change uh, in modern culture that others didn't. And yet what's interesting about Steve Jobs, at least from the history, perspective of the history of genius, is that you know, historically the genius has been described as somebody who brings something new into creation, right? And you can argue that what Jobs was really good at was actually taking the ideas of others and sort of um, packaging them, right, marketing them, putting them together, and did that brilliantly. And of course there's a real skill in that. Um, it's not something you or I could do. And yet it's not creating originally in the sense of a kind of older uh, notion of genius. And yet when Steve Jobs died, you know, you just go to any major news outlet and you'll see, you know, the American genius dead. And I think in some ways Steve Jobs is a perfect example of the modern genius who's a kind of uh, media figure, who's also a successful business person, um, who uh, has a kind of uh, capacity to impose uh, uh, his or her will on uh, on the world, uh, and yet uh, um, doesn't have this kind of uh, charged uh, uh, semi-religious power that the older older geniuses had. Even if Jobs, in some ways, you know, has this interest in um, in Eastern mysticism, he's he's eccentric. He doesn't wear shoes. He doesn't bathe. He he takes drugs when he's younger. I mean, he's not 
your ordinary figure, and that gives him something of the flavor of an older genius. He's nonetheless not uh, uh, the, the model of the, of the genius as the genius emerges in the 18th century. Is there any other point uh, that is relevant to our discussion uh, that I might have missed and uh, that you would like to add? You know, maybe the one last thing that I would point out is that, as I try to argue in the book, there's a, a belief in the kind of superhuman powers of individuals is potentially dangerous. It's a belief that can be abused. It's also a belief, though, that human beings want to believe. And I try to point out that there are psychological reasons why we're invested often in the idea that some human beings are just radically different from others, fundamentally distinct, that we have a yearning for uh, uh, the transcendent. We have a yearning for uh, the superhuman. We have a yearning to be astounded by the marvels of what uh, men and women can do. And I use that word marvel. This is how people describe uh, Michelangelo's paintings when they see them for the first time, uh, or his sculpture. It's so lifelike. It's una maravilla. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that you just simply can't conceive in human terms. Human beings want that. They need that. And as I try to point out in the book, um, at the same time, that notion is in conflict with a belief in human equality. And we're uncomfortable with the idea that some human beings are just inherently a lot smarter or a lot more creative or a lot better, uh, I say that in uh, inverted commas, than others. And I think we've tended to dispense in many ways with the notion of genius. And yet, um, as I try to suggest at the very end of the book, although there are good reasons for that and a good reason to be skeptical of, of genuflecting before great men or great women, um, I think that that um, dismissal comes at a certain cost, uh, a cost that, um, uh, that, that we feel when we no longer can marvel, that we no longer can uh, stand in wonder before human greatness. Professor Darren Mackman, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be with you.